In this series, we'll be taking a look at Paul's letter to the Romans, a church that Paul did not plant. However, he was instrumental through his letters and his time in Rome to establish the foundational concepts of the gospel and leading the way in discipleship. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Romans 7. This is an incredibly uh, confusing and wordy chapter. And so I'm going to try to read through most of it here. I'm going to start in verse 6. And Romans 7 is about the law, which if you were born here in America and you're not born a Jewish person, the law, you may not know what the law is, uh, first of all. So I'll just, I understand that. And then secondly, what does the law have to do with us as Christians? If you've been in church for any amount of time, there's all sorts of things you may have heard preached from the pulpit that we don't, we aren't bound by the law anymore. We don't have to obey the law. The law is an Old Testament thing. It's a Levitical thing. It was for Moses. It's part of the Torah. It's, it was for the Jewish people. We are under the new covenant, I've heard, preached from the stage, and we don't have to listen to it. So why are we going to read Romans 7, in which Paul is going to, in a very confusing way, talk about the law? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thanks for asking. We're going to talk about that here this morning. And so verses 1 through 5 of 7 is Paul gives the analogy of a marriage Um, and the idea of divorce in the Jewish custom to understanding what Christ did for us and how he broke the chains and set us free from the sin that we were entangled with to be able to accept his sacrifice on the cross. Um, That alone can take an entire sermon, so I'll just let you study that on your own. I'm sure you'll go home and Google Romans 7, 1 through 5, and we're going to pick it up in verse 6. Because verse 6 is, by the way, if you do not understand verse 6 of Romans 7, you don't understand Christianity. How dare you? No, pay pay attention. Romans 7 verse 6 is Christianity in a nutshell. It is the whole crux of what is going on of all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation comes down to what is said in verse 6. And yet verse 6 in and of itself can be difficult to understand. So by God's grace, I'm going to do my best to explain it and the following verses so you can see what God is doing. It is so much bigger than the Ten Commandments. It is so much bigger than moral or right living. It is so much bigger than the works that you do or think you have to do to get to heaven. It encompasses the very heart of Yahweh in verse seven, in Romans 7, verse 6. So let's start there, and it reads like this. Um, I'm using an NRSV translation. That's what I'll have up here, so it'll sound differently if you're looking at one of the Bibles, but it goes like this. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Now, unless you study Scripture, that is admittedly a little bit of a difficult verse to completely comprehend what Paul's saying. But don't worry, it gets more confusing. Verse 7, what then should we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So thanks a lot, law. I added that. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, don't covet. But sin, it seized an opportunity in the commandment, and it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, this should bother you a little bit, just reading this point blank. So you're saying without the law, sin lies dead? Yeah. Who gave the law to the people? God, Moses, good job. Wow. We've got a very theologically astute group here. 
So wait, Paul, you're saying if it wasn't for the law, then Sid would lie dead, and it's God who gave us the law, so God causes all sin, and I should hate God. Let's just keep reading. <laughs> I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Tell me this isn't getting confusing. It gets worse. So I died, uh, wait, for sin seizing another opportunity in the commandment deceived me, and it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and it's just and good. Now, wait a minute. Paul, you just said that it's because of the law that sin was revived, and it killed you, and you closed it out by saying the law is holy, it's all holy, it's just and good. Verse 13. Did what is good then bring death to me? Well, it would seem by your logic so far, Paul, yes. But he goes on. By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Obviously, right? You guys all got this? We got this? Okay. Now, Paul deals with the inner conflict. In case you weren't thoroughly confused enough about sin and the law and death and captivity and the spirit and life, and if you read 1 through 5, the whole marriage analogy, here we go. Verse 14, for now we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. The devil made me do it. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. Yes! What in the world? Paul, you are drunk. Stop writing scripture and just go to bed. You have had too much sacramental wine. Like, no way does anyone understand this in the first century, let alone the 21st century. But I'm not done. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of the mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Verse 25 is uh, beautiful. In the midst of all of this, this confusion and this uh, craziness, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh I am a slave to the law of sin. Okay, so there is a reason why most churches do not preach Romans 7 on a Sunday morning, or, or this is how it gets preached, we're going to just do this part, I don't do the things I want, and I do the things I don't want to do. That's how it normally gets preached. We grab that little scripture, and then a pastor will expound a whole sermon on the battle that's going on inside, and that as Christians, we ought to be doing better, and we should be doing better things in order for God to love us. And no, we don't need it to love us because he died on the cross, but let's be honest, if you're going to be a good Christian, you better do good things. And it creates this unbelievably confusing message to people that says, it's not the works that you do because Christ did it on the cross, but you should probably do a lot of works too, just to make sure that you get a bigger mansion than the person sitting next to you in heaven, just to ensure that you're going to get there. And we miss the point of Romans 7. And the point goes back to verse 6. 
that we have been discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves, not under this old written code, but that we have a new life in the Spirit. At the beginning of this message, I said, I want to see men and women walking in the authority and the power given to us because of Christ's death on the cross. Now I've got about 20 minutes here to explain what Paul is talking about to get us to that point, to get us to that point. So there's a a gentleman, N.T. Wright, and he's uh, still alive today. He's a theologian, a New Testament scholar. He's considered to be the leading scholar on the New Testament and Paulian theology, which is just the theology of guys who study Paul and all of his letters. And uh, he's absolutely brilliant. There's a humility about him that I love. There's a ease to how he teaches uh, the book that I've taken an excerpt of out of here today, because at the end of the day, I'm not smart enough to come up with this, but he was. The Lord gave me discernment. I saw it. And so this is from his book, Paul and the, uh, what is it? Paul and the Faithfulness of God. Um, This is about five pages out of the 1,500-page book. So if you want to go pick it up and just have a little light reading for the rest of September, uh, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, 1,500 pages on Paul and the New Testament theology. Have fun with that. But this is what he says about one. After everything that Paul has said cryptically and curiously about the Torah, which is the law, it is time to explain just where the law fit into God's purpose. And so the Torah is those first five books of the Bible. If you were a good young Jewish boy growing up underneath the rabbi, you would have learned the Torah. You would have memorized the Torah. You would have understood all the rules. I believe there's more than 600 laws in the Torah. You know how many rules there were in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? Just one. Just one. We couldn't keep that. And God's like, well, maybe they can keep 613. Maybe we could do it. And so what is happening here is Paul is going to show us the purpose here in Romans chapter 7 of the law. And when you take first century writing, right, that's when he's writing this in the first century, and you try to interpret it with our 21st century understanding of the words we're reading, which have been translated, a lot of the original meaning gets lost. And so instead of seeking for that deeper meaning, sometimes we're just okay to accept a more shallow surface meaning, and I'm guilty of this too, and we just say, ah, I'm not smart enough to figure it out. And I've been there. I was there for a long time, and I've been in a place where I've wrestled with the Lord back and forth on truth and the different denominations and doctrine and what is right and what grieves the Holy Spirit and what is honoring to the Lord. And I feel like during this time off, the Lord gave me a lot of peace. You ever try to work on a puzzle, and you see a piece that looks like it's supposed to fit, but it doesn't fit? But you've been working on this puzzle so long, you make it fit? You're like, it's close enough. That's sort of uh, how theology has been. For a pa- that's how it is for any pastor, especially for me, where you're like, oh, man. And as I begin to read this, and as the Lord began to show me some really neat things, which I'll share more of over the coming weeks, I began to just have a sense that I was seeing puzzle pieces fit in spots that I've been asking the Lord for a long time. And this, I believe it was the Lord's will that I stopped on Romans 6 when I did before my sabbatical and that I didn't get into Romans 7 beforehand because I would not have known to teach it the way I do now, the way it ties in to Adam and Eve, the way it ties in to Abraham and the Israelites and how it all brings us down to the Messiah Christ 
and the purpose of Christ on the cross. So, Romans 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, Paul, don't covet. And so it brings up this case that says, well, if the law makes sin visible, then how does that not produce sin in me? Here's the deal. Who likes to be told what to do? Okay. It's about like first service, too. There are a couple of do-gooders in there, but other than that, no one likes to be told what to do. Who likes to be told what not to do? Yes, same people raise their hands. We don't like to be told what not to do. And so here's the thing. Have you ever been in a spot where, like me, I like to clean my room on my own? I wanted to do it in my time once a year when I felt it was dirty as a kid. And if my mother ever said, Nathan, go clean your room, there's just instantly built up something in me that was like, no, I don't want to. I was going to today, actually, oddly enough. It was the day I was going to, but now I don't want to. Or your kids are sitting there peacefully playing, uh, watching TV or playing, and then you say, kids, mom just made some cookies. She set them out over here. Don't touch them. You should have just said anything, right? Now all they can think about is the smell they hadn't noticed, the fact that there's cookies and you are no longer in the kitchen to watch them. And this is what Paul said. He's saying the law did not produce sin in me. The law revealed sin that was already in me. Oh, that's deep, Paul. Okay. Why didn't you just say that? Where'd that sin come from? Who was the first one to sin? Go ahead, you can say it. Don't say Eve. You know what? There was a guy first service who was sitting right here, and he got an elbow right in the side because he said, Eve. <laughs> yeah, Adam. Guys, come on. The men's retreat was seven days ago. We can do better than this. Adam. Adam was the first to sin. He's the first one whom sin came into the world. And so there's this thing, what is sin then? What is sin? And you've heard me say from the stage, it's failing to see what is clear. Well, I want to provide more insight on that for you this morning. What has been made clear to us? What's been made clear to us from the garden is that we are made in the image of God. And as being made in the image of God, man was given a vocation, a job. And his job was to fill the earth with the knowledge of God and take dominion over it, right? And we learn in Genesis that God's spirit walked with Adam, that God was with Adam on his creation. I'm going to get more into this because there is a beauty when you understand Genesis as it is written and not as man has interpreted it, but understand the beauty of what it means that God walked with Adam as Adam did his job of taking dominion of the earth. So what is sin? Well, at some point, Adam stopped doing his job, stopped filling the earth with the knowledge of God, was tempted by this voice from a serpent that said, hey, Adam, you're not going to die if you eat from that tree. You'll become like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And Adam, in his heart from that moment, started to make an idol out of being his own God. And idolatry, the idolatry of Adam, 
is the sin that every man and woman born suffers with. We all suffer with the same sin of wanting to be like God rather than worship God. Romans 1, 18, the wrath of God was revealed against them, 18 through 25, ultimately because they begin to worship the creation and the creature rather than the creator. You see, Adam did not curse all of humanity because he ate the apple or the, the pear or whatever the fruit was. Adam was cursed because in his heart, he stopped doing the job he was created to do. He purposed in his heart to put an idol to be as God is. Which, by the way, why was Lucifer and a third of the angels cast out of heaven? Because he wanted to be like God. He put himself on the same plane as God, although he was a created thing. So this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, from Adam came this sin, and in me this sin wages a war. And it causes me to do the things I don't want to do, and the things I want to do, I don't do them, because my mind and my heart are at war with one another. And look around. Look at, look at the cultures of the world. It is built by people who want to make themselves gods. Even Pablo Escobar was wanting to be a god. He was wanting to be president of Colombia, ultimately. He ran for office. He wanted the people to love him, so he gave millions of his dollars away so the people would love him. And it was not for anything else than his own buildup, his own idolatry of self. And he worshipped self. He worshipped the creation rather than the creator, and that is the ultimate sin of idolatry, is we worship ourselves. What's the model of the world? Make yourself happy. Why? Because you are what matters. It's at the heart of every man and woman. Worship yourself. Make yourself happy, and then make other people happy if you have time. Paul says, I see this battle. I am captive to this battle. And so how does this work with the Torah? What does any of this have to do with the law that you heard a million times in the scripture I read? Is Jesus plan B? Was plan A that Adam and Eve would have just done it right the first time and we'd all be their grandchildren living these perfect lives flying all over the solar system? And Jesus was plan B. God's like, oh, they messed it up. And so what did he do? He created his own people, didn't he? He sent Abraham out into the desert, and he created the Israelite people. And we find out from the Genesis that uh, through the Exodus and then the exiles and the judges and the kings and the prophets and then (laughs) the next exile uh, and the next captivity that God had this plan through his chosen people that the world would be delivered through the Israelite people. Did Did you know that? That was his plan, right? So what happened when the Israelites fell? I mean, by this time, Jesus has to be plan B. Like, plan A was Adam. Adam failed, served himself, stopped doing his vocation as a human. He was made in the image of God, stopped bearing the image of God. So God calls for himself his own people. Abraham raises up the Israelites, and what do they do? Well, if you read the Old Testament, man, it's like clockwork. Like, they love the Lord, they fall. They repent, they love the Lord, they fall. It is just up and down. God raises up a righteous king. And he does something really boneheaded and he falls. God raises up a righteous prophet. He does something really boneheaded and he falls. And so at some point, you got to imagine Jesus 
God is like, Jesus, would you just go down there and fix this? Like, I tried with Adam and then the Israelite, my people. Would you just go fix it, Jesus? I want to put before you that what Paul is pointing out here and what he's going to continue to point out in the book of Romans, but where he really starts this uh, line of reasoning is right here in verse in chapter 7, is that Jesus is not plan B or C for the human race, but right in Genesis, right in Genesis, we see that God says, I will crush, he will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. That when man, when he saw man with free will choose to be as he is, God purposed right then and there from the very beginning, I will redeem them and they will be my people again. They will bear my image on this earth, my tabernacle, my creation. They will bear my image again. Their vocation will be renewed again. And it will come through my people, Israel. Did God know the Israelites were going to fail? You bet he did. Did he know they were going to fail over and over and over again? Absolutely he did. You know what? He even gave them the law. The law was more than 600 rules and laws. Were we meant to keep that perfect? Were we? No. God knew who we were. God knew that with free will, that what we, the law is meant to do is to show us what is required for perfection. And nobody can keep that. But here is the deeper purpose of the law that Paul is getting to here. Um, For sin, verse 11, seizing an opportunity and the commandment deceived me and through it it killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy. It is just and good. So what good then? What good then is the law that it would bring death to me? He says, no, the law didn't bring death to me. Sin working in me brought death to me. And then right here, in order that the sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Could we please put that up there, Romans 13? This is super important that we understand what is being said here. There we go. That sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Does anybody know what that means? Anybody just to raise a hand know what that means? You can just raise your hand. You don't have to say anything. But it means that sin became sinful beyond measure. This is one of those moments where the Lord put a a puzzle piece for me. This is one of those moments where uh, all my years in school and study and church and all the Sunday mornings, I have never heard it said like this. But as N.T. Wright says, and this is fantastic here, Where's it at? The divine purpose of the law, as it seems, was to allow sin to do its worst in Israel itself through the law. God's way of defeating sin, and sin is like a cancer, right? It starts, it starts in one area of our life, and it begins to infect everything. And just like cancer, before you know it, it's in the bones, it's in the lungs, it's in the muscles, it's in the skin tissue. It is deep. It is not able to be eradicated. It has spread through someone's entire body. 
That's what sin does, and that's what it has done in the body of Christ, is it is pervasive. The Bible says the devil is an angel of light. We do not even recognize that he is so deceptive. One of the cool things about the men's retreat is I got to share an area of my life and be vulnerable myself that although I'd given God authority over so much of my life, there was still an area that I had deceived myself into believing he had full authority, but he didn't. And I never saw it until the Lord revealed it to me during my time off. He's an angel of light. His whole goal is to, to deceive you. His whole goal is to keep you not recognizing the cancer which is spreading throughout your body. And so this is what Jesus did. He said, I will call a people to myself, a nation that did not exist before Abraham. And through this people, I will then give my law, 600 plus commands, of what it means to live righteously and be perfect. They will be unable to keep it, but here is my purpose through it, that through the commandment that uh, they might become sinful beyond measure. And this is what N.T. Wright says, and it just it illuminated so much of Scripture for me. He said, God used his people like a lightning rod for sin so that sin would focus itself on the Israelite people. You know, you've heard me preach, and I said, why did God wait to come when he came? Why did Jesus keep saying, my time has not yet come? My time has not yet come. My time, remember that? He kept saying, my time has not yet come. It is not time for the Son of Man to be delivered into the hands of the enemy. And then finally, on the night he's betrayed, he says, it's time. Why? Because from Abraham, through all of the fathers and the prophets and the judges and the kings, sin was looking at Israel and what it was doing, and imagine if we could get to a technology in medicine where it was causing the sin that was spread throughout the entire body of the human race, and it was focusing it all in one spot. Could you imagine if we could take cancer and reverse it in a person's body to focus it in like one ball, and then just remove that ball and the cancer was gone? This is what God was doing. This is what Paul, and remember, as Paul is writing this, this is brand new revelation. It's not brand new revelation that he's making up. He's clearly looking at the scriptures. He knew the scriptures better than anybody, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And he's looking at it in light of who Jesus was and what he did and the accounts of the apostles and the accounts of Dr. Luke. And he's, he's seeing all of this. And God shows him as he's writing this letter to Rome. Why is he writing a letter to Rome? They already have a king. They already have the gods. Why is he writing this letter to Rome? Because he's wanting them to see that Yahweh, the one true creator, has come and he has dealt with the problem of sin and death. And here's how he's done it. He chose his people to suffer. He chose his people that sin would attack them. That sin would be drawn to them like a lightning rod so that when sin brought all of its power and all of its disease and disgust upon them when the time is right and when it had gone beyond measure, that he would go on the cross and he would defeat it. He brought sin to one place and the purpose of the law, it was a trick. It was like he was luring. It was bait. The law was bait. And this people that were trying to keep it were bait that Satan and sin would come and be drawn to it. And that when it was at its full measure, when it was beyond what it could take, Jesus died on the cross and he defeated it. And on the third day, he rose again and he overcame it. And he said, 
for those that would believe in me, that would return to the vocation of being image bearers of God Almighty, you will walk in the same authority and power that I walked in. It's been granted to you. That's what I mean when I say you don't have to work for it. You can't work for it. The Israelites couldn't work for it. They tried. They tried for generations to work for it, not understanding that the whole time their purpose was meant to be a place that God would bring the powers of sin into one place so it could be defeated once and for all. This is why Paul separates himself here in verse uh, 17, but in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. And here's, here's a point that N.T. Wright goes on to say, which I really like, is Paul begins to separate himself from the sin, and he's separating those reading it from the sin, saying, look, you as a man or a woman are made in the image of God. Toads are not, cats are not, dogs are not, trees are not, nothing else but the human spirit and body is made in the image of God. And so you are not evil, but it is sin that dwells within you. And he's saying... There is a war going on. I understand. Paul's saying, I understand the war as well as anybody. I have suffered with this war constantly. You ever read the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? If you go back and read the original uh, by Lewis Stevenson, I think, or something like that. It's Dr. Jekyll, and he realizes that there's this part in every human, these two selves. And so he creates a potion that separates the two selves, Right? And Mr. Hyde isn't mostly evil. Mr. Hyde is completely evil. He is selfish and sadistic beyond all measure with no good in him. And he separates the good from the evil. And it's an incredible picture of what it is to walk in this world and know Christ. Is that Paul says, in the flesh I continue to battle this nature I was born into, but in the spirit I have overcome it. I have been given the power to overcome it. And so it is not I that sin, but the sin that is already within me. Christ, remove it from me. Take it from me. Overcome it in me. This is Paul presenting the gospel. This is Paul presenting the theology of Christ and redemption, election, all of it in one. And so if we go back to Romans, and I'll close with this, if we go back to Romans uh, 6, Verse seven, chapter 7, verse 6, and I said, if you don't understand this, you don't understand Christianity. But now we are discharged from the law. We are dead to that which held us captive. So beforehand, he's given this analogy of marriage, saying that if your spouse dies, ladies, if you're back then in the Jewish law, if your husband dies, you may get remarried, right? And so he's using that analogy. And he's saying that we are discharged from the law. We were bound to the law. We were bound to sin because of Adam, not because of the Jews, because of Adam, because of the idolatry in Adam's heart. And we are now discharged from that law. We are dead to that which held us captive. And we are no longer slaves under that old code, but rather we have new life because of the Spirit of God which has been given us, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is still confusing. I get that. And I'm going to spend next week on the second half of this, on the second half of verse 7 as he gets into uh, verse 14 through 26. But I just want to say this, that the lie the devil wants to deceive the world with 
is that Christianity is about being righteous and being good and following rules and being more moral and more pious than our neighbor. That is such a filthy lie. Look at me. Look at me. Do not believe that. The whole of the Bible is about a redemptive, loving God who, when his creation turned from him, and chose to be like him rather than worship him, he came down in the midst of their story, and he suffered the pain, he suffered the death, and took upon himself, took upon the physical body, the sin, and he defeated it on our behalf. He didn't become sin, he took on our sin, and he defeated it on our behalf because he loves us, that we may Walk then in our vocation as Adam was supposed to walk in gratitude and thankfulness for what he has done. If we understood God like that, if Christian men and women understood how much he loved you and how much has been given you because of his love, there would be a difference in our community. And I implore you men, just especially the men as the leaders of the household, what do they say? If you, if you get a woman to come to church, sometimes you'll get the woman and the kids. If you get a man to come to church, you'll get the family. It's one of the reasons we invested so much money when I first came out here to the men's retreat because I believe in getting the men here and, and leading the family and, and saying, I will submit, I will lay down my life for my family. Right? It's so important that you understand what God has done for you, because when you understand it like that, you'll begin to give him authority over your marriage, over your finances, your kids, your job, your temptations, your lusts, your addictions, all of it. You'll give him authority over it, and you'll say, Lord, may I begin to walk in your authority. You cannot walk in the authority of the Lord as long as you have given the authority of the world to an area of your life. Even if you've given nine out of ten areas of your life to the Lord, as long as there's still an area of your life which the world has authority over, God will not compete with it. As Moses came down from Mount Sinai, right, and there's this golden calf, and what does Aaron say? Yeah, it just jumped out of the fire. That's what he says. He goes, yeah, we were just hanging out, and this calf jumped out of the fire. God said, I'm not going to be with them as long as that's there. You cannot serve two masters, so choose this day whom you will serve. Amen? And watch what happens, men, women. Give God authority over those areas. Ask him to search your heart. Ask him to make known to you the areas that you continue to withhold from him, even the areas you didn't consciously withhold, and see what happens when you hand those areas over. We're going to be a church that walks in the authority, the power, the wisdom of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled and grateful, Lord, for shedding knowledge on uh, your scriptures, for showing us that you've had a plan from the beginning, that you've loved us from the beginning, that this was never an accident. We didn't surprise you. Israel didn't mess up, so you had to come down here and fix it. Lord, all of it was part of your plan to deepen your revelation, that we might understand that we are the image bearers of God, that when we go out of this place, we don't just carry the last name of our Father, but we carry the spiritual image of our Creator. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah.
result of understanding what I've preached here today. Understanding that because of the cross, because of Jesus, who was an Israelite, right? He was part of God's chosen people to bring about redemption, not just for his chosen people, but for all mankind. And because he was an Israelite, he came and he fulfilled the law perfectly. Fulfilled the law. When we get together to celebrate communion, it's not a tradition or it's not uh, something we do because everyone else does it. We do it because the Bible says that when Jesus gathered together, he said, so often as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. That we might remember that our finances, our strength, our marriage, our job, our homes do not come from our own might, but rather they come from the giver of all good gifts. So as he sat with his disciples, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you, for the forgiveness of sins. And then he took the cup afterwards and drank past it. He said, this is my blood shed for you. You may have eternal life. So there's three stations up front, three in the back. If you have a relationship with the Lord, we invite you to partake of this remembrance. We invite you to examine yourself before you partake of it. And then you can go back to your seat, go to whichever station is closest to you, and we'll close with worship.